listening to No Filter, a 2FM collective podcast. I'm Louise Makshari and welcome to No Filter, the podcast which features conversations with extraordinary women with extraordinary stories. This episode features Sophie White, who is a writer from Dublin. Her work covers all sorts of topics, from food to fashion to first-person experiences of life's biggest challenges. She's the author of the brilliant book, Recipes for a Nervous Breakdown, which is one part cookbook and one part memoir, and most recently began co-hosting Mother of Pod, a podcast which is a no-holds-barred look at motherhood. We recently sat down to talk about something she's been writing beautifully about recently, the death of her father after years of living with early onset Alzheimer's disease. However, we began by talking about parenting, which is what brought us together as friends. One of the reasons that it was so great for me to meet someone like you at the time that I did, and one of the reasons that I'm so glad that you and um, Jen O'Dwyer are doing the podcast that you're doing, Mother of Pod, which is all about motherhood, yeah. is that you do not mince your words when it comes to the reality of motherhood. And I really needed someone in my life like that because I was still in that new mother phase of like feeling like I was a failure because I wasn't feeling the things that I thought I was supposed to be feeling and I was like I'm not loving every minute of this and obviously there's something wrong with me where now I know that there was nothing wrong with me but I was really feeling that at the time. Oh totally that it's such a like sham that I don't know why anyone's bothering perpetuating it (laughs) because it then feels like you've been lied to like by society when yeah when motherhood isn't like all really nice and bondy and sweet smelling and <laughs> yeah like joy filled every second of the day and after I had my first baby so I was, I was 28 and it was kind of like I think like you know it was a little bit sooner than I'd really anticipated or pictured but I kind of you know I, I was having this baby now and I was getting on board with it and I just remember feeling like really betrayed by like the world when yeah it was like mostly pure terror at the beginning yeah. and a lot of fluids yeah. a lot of <laughs> so many and leaking and weeping I remember at one point thinking <laughs> I will never be dry again I will never be dry again <laughs> yes what is that uh, so many yeah. patches of various fluids on your person at all at times at all times and like it's such a simple wish just to be <laughs> not moist, covered in your own effluvia. And it, yeah, I think, and that was something that, like, then when I was working on my book and I was writing chapters about becoming a mother, and I kind of, like, obviously took some time to kind of really boil all this kind of resentment and rage I felt towards the human race for lying to me about motherhood. And I kind of, like, coined the, oh, yes, it's the isn't it heaven oh. um, mantra that everyone's throwing at you in the first kind of six weeks of having yeah. a new baby you're there you're at the traffic lights you've got the kind of dead eyes you look like Nosferatu because you haven't slept in like 14 <laughs> days you're like pushing the buggy the child's like screaming or staring at you whatever it is you're not filled with love at that stage yeah. you're just filled with obligation really I mean you know they're not giving anything back yet and a touch of resentment <laughs> yes and then some woman at the traffic lights will take it upon herself to engage you with the isn't it heaven comment and you're like what how could seriously though do you think heaven is how could any logical 
person in their right mind <laughs> think that that's heaven? Like if you sat down with someone and you were like, how do you envisage heaven? They'd be like, oh, um, all the delicious food I could eat. Mm, and relaxing. like I have a perfect tan all the time and I just can read books all day if I'm I want. I'm really comfortable. And, yeah. I'm not in pain. No. <laughs> <laughs> like it wouldn't be, oh, I'll tell you what heaven is. Heaven is up all night. Up someone all screaming night. in my ear. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. I Literally don't know how to solve the problem. Being tortured with sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah. It's just like being waterboarded by a tiny little human you made yourself. Desperately, <laughs> desperately trying to feed them, but it not really working and then feeling like an absolute failure the entire time. Um, oh my yeah, God. That's, yeah, that's heaven to me. Heaven. Yeah, you've hit that heaven nail right Ooh. on that head, lady. <laughs> now, I think I had, a, I think I probably had a, a bit of to- postnatal depression after having my first. And I'd gone into a, like a deep hole of denial on that fact and like mm. was refusing to address it, which mm. uh, is so bizarre, but also I think really common. Yeah. You know, yeah. just women, like we're just, we're legends. I love women. We're troopers to the point of our own detriment. I think there's a sense of- so much shit that we're just used to it. That's true. Yeah. And yeah, I think that for me, there was like a sense of, it was very tied in with, like I hadn't set out to have this baby exactly, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, as much as I was then so happy with the baby, I always felt on the back foot. Mm -hmm. I just felt not ready and not, and now, of course, I meet other women and you're never ready. That's yeah. the thing. It's fine. And it's actually such a relief to me now to talk to women who say have tried, for example, for years and had the babies, the much longed for babies. And then they still feel not ready and terrified. And I'm yeah. like, oh, OK. Yeah. My usual line with now with parenting is to not offer advice mm. beyond don't get your infant tattooed. I think anyone who is just doing anything is doing the right thing. Just don't get them tattooed. I think that's like the main thing to follow. That is solid advice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So you mentioned earlier that since we met this last year has been a difficult one for you um, and not just because you had your second baby. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like that's kind of sad. Like that whole thing could have been just a shitstorm in and of itself, but it barely got a look in. Well, he's a very... He's a he's a very relaxed he's, baby. He's cool. He's sound. Yeah. Yeah. So when my second baby was born, it was a kind of crazy little storm of events happened that weekend. So my dad had been sick for several years. He'd been sick since um, I suppose I was in my early 20s. He was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. So that was very early onset Alzheimer's. And when things kind of declined. So how old was he when he was initially diagnosed? He was in his uh, 50s, early mm, 50s. So young. And things declined initially quite steadily, like just kind of increments over, say, four or five years. He lived with us at home. He still, it was so kind of insidious, the progression of this um, illness that you the kind of I suppose anyone who like lives with kind of a long illness like that will probably kind of know what I'm saying when I say that like the goalposts move all the time but you're just kind of adjusting with them the whole time so sometimes it's hard to zoom out and see the big picture and see how far things have kind of declined Mm. so um four years ago he he had quite a severe um I mean, it was it was kind of about about a psychosis, which is 
it happens with early onset Alzheimer's. We weren't prepared for it. We just didn't realize that something like that was coming at mm. all. And so that kind of meant that we had to um, find a place for him to live because it wasn't appropriate for him to live at home anymore. And it's just so I mean, I hate saying this stuff because sometimes it can feel like a betrayal to him mm. and who he was. But I suppose I've talked about it now and I've kind of made peace with the fact that like I'm speaking to his experiences because they like they're valid and what happened to him is is I don't know I think it's worth talking about because so many other people are facing this Alzheimer's is you know a huge problem in Ireland and I just try to always remember that like this was a separate person to who he really was Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like illness just completely obliterated who he was who was he before he got sick so before he got sick um, for all of his life basically he was just the funnest funniest brightest man like he was such fun as a dad like for me I'm an only child and he was nearly like a kind of a sibling dad almost like he never let an opportunity for like mischief or boldness to kind of pass us by like if there was a chance like a prank to play a joke to play on somebody he was always on it all over (laughs) it he was so creative he worked in television um, I think he probably, I don't know, like he did probably most jobs you can do in television. He started as a researcher in the 70s in like political programming. He ended up being the head of entertainment. Um, along the way, he like wrote a sitcom. He produced um, Eurovision at Mill Street, I think. <laughs> in <Fact> Ireland. <laughs> um, he, oh my God, biggest Eurovision fan of all time. I mean, he is hilarious with that. We played Linda Martin's Why Me at the funeral. You were there. <laughs> and I think the whole place was completely baffled. <laughs> About a dozen people got the joke and everyone else is like, are they playing the Irish Eurovision entry from 1993, guys? But yeah, I mean, he was so fun and he was so bright and he was just so intelligent. And he was, yeah, he was a really amazing father to have. Like, I really feel lucky that I had him. He was a very kind of measured person and he was brilliant at reading other people. He was brilliant at reading situations. He was great for like guidance and stuff. And I feel Mm. like I wish I'd had that as an adult. I really didn't have him in that capacity when I was an adult. Mm. And things like I didn't start writing until kind of really in my sort of late 20s he like he'd never read anything I wrote and things like that makes me kind of sad because mm. I'd love to have I don't know just made him proud on that front and mm. um, so after he like really went quite downhill and we arranged for him to move out of the house and it was also sudden I think that's the thing with Alzheimer's and dementia and things I think if there's one thing you can bank on, you think it's going to be that it's going to be so gradual that we're going to have time here. We're going to have time. Yeah, you'll kind of process as you go along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then suddenly we just didn't have time and his condition seemed to just drop off a cliff. It was so crazy. Like he, I mean, I suppose, I suppose maybe it was there all along, but I just wasn't seeing it. So around that time I was, um, I just had my first child. So I was also distracted <laughs> by that. Yeah. And um, so we uh, had to have him committed initially just while we tried to sort out where he was going to live and what was going to happen. And from there, you just don't know what it all is going to be and what it's going to look like. And uh, now when I feel like I've kind of lived through it now, if you could see what was coming, no, you wouldn't be able to do it, yeah. I think. 
Um, I think it's really traumatic watching someone die like that. And I think that while it was happening, I just completely compartmentalized it to this insane degree. And I it's a funny thing about denial when you're in denial, you have no idea you're in denial. It's yeah. like, you know, it's the air you breathe. It's just this it's a powerful force. And so, you know, I'd go and visit him in the home he lived for the last kind of three years of his life. And like some days you just sit on your phone yeah. because that's it. You can't look at something like that all the time because you you couldn't go on if you kept staring it down like that. So you How did you keep going? I think the denial is definitely like a biological kind but of defense mechanism. But I mean, even just going physically going to visit him. Yeah, it, I find it really tough. I, f I find it so tough, actually, like in terms of how it made me feel about myself as a person. I really felt like I'm a monster mm. is kind of if I kind of went there with it and started to think about it too much, I think, why can't you, you know, I don't know, I'd hold his hands or I'd like kind of make myself like I'd kind of moisturize his hands sometimes or something like that, because there's no connection there anymore with a person in that state. But you're trying to kind of find a way in. I like I'd kind of sometimes sing to him when we're on our own. He loved music so much. We'd listen to music and things. But like it was like visiting a like deep, dark hole a couple of times a week. And then like, I mean, I'd practically watch the clock and count down that that hour, two hours, whatever it was going to be. And I would then just I'd be out of there and I don't know. Yeah, it just it'd be like resurfacing. Then you'd kind of come out into the day and you'd be like, oh, yeah, there's a life. There's mm. this. There's all this stuff. I mean, I used to bring my sons out there sometimes, um, especially when they were kind of smaller mm. and less aware of where they were and things. Um, so it all kind of it came to a head, really, um, with the weekend that my second baby was born, as I said, in this strange kind of storm of events, I went into labor on the due date and the same day Kev my dad had a really bad fall and then had to have surgery which I well I don't think it didn't cause but he had a heart attack in the aftermath mm. of the surgery so I think my mum was trying to protect me to some degree from what was kind of happening I was in Harlow Street I was trying to stick a boob in a baby's you mouth were busy. and yeah I was yeah. Like, quite busy and but then basically I basically on the Sunday night, I got a text. I mean, it was 3 a.m. I was awake. I have a two day old baby mm. and I, it was from her saying, are you awake? And I just knew that it was something. And I rang her and she said that the hospital had said, come now, he mightn't last the night. And I remember just thinking he's going to last the night and this is just going to keep on going. And that's, I think, it must sound like the most callous thing in the world to anyone who kind of hasn't been there. But for somebody who's watched just such a, a degrading process yeah. of losing all your reason and your memories, losing all the pleasure in life. Yeah. You know, I couldn't eat. I had to feed him this stupid pudding yeah. that's full of extra calories. And you're doing it and thinking, why are we prolonging this? Yeah. And anyway, he did recover from his heart attack. Um, but he and that's the thing, you see, the bloody irony of it all is he's so young and strong. Yeah. 
that he could that he could recover. recover yeah. Um. So, um, the next few months though. It was really it was really starting to change. His condition was starting to change. But and I think his care team, who are absolutely amazing where he lived, um, they knew it was coming. But I think it's so strange. You can be waiting for something and waiting for something. And when it finally is there, you can't believe it. Yeah. So like <laughs> the week he died um, you know, we definitely I think we'd made a real effort to see him and be with him more and more and we weren't really exactly saying uh let's let's plan this funeral we were just kind of i i think well pulling closer and me and my mother and just stealing ourselves and but still i remember she rang me and she said they really don't think it looks good for kev but i felt i think maybe at that stage i'd heard it too many times and yeah. i was like well I'm collecting the boys from play school and I'll be I'll come over tomorrow. And she was like, just come now. Your father's dying. Like, <laughs> I remember her reaction was so funny. She was like, I mean, do I have to say it twice? And I was like, oh, OK. And even then, I just still didn't think it was really happening. So I just remember I didn't even tell my husband. Now, maybe that was sometimes you need to be alone in these moments yeah. and didn't really tell him anything was happening. He was going to a gig. Sometimes it's easier not to say these things out loud. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't even text him and say, I think it's going down. I, I just arranged for my friend to come to my house and mind my kids. And I went out and I suppose they then in the hospice had moved him into a, a different room, a special, much more comfortable room with mm -hmm. kind of more chairs, more mm. chairs for mm -hmm. people to go to sleep in basically so then we kind of did like yeah we spent his last day on what I called death watch and mm. it was so surreal like I kind of was on deadline filing copy I mean that's denial guys that's crazy but like I didn't even I think my mother was so deep in it as well. It didn't even occur to her to be like, maybe just tell them you can't meet the deadlines, though. You know, yeah. in a way, it's just you just cling to the normality where you can, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just remember complaining endlessly about the shit biscuits. I was like, there should be better snacks at this deathbed. Well, I think that that's a legitimate complaint. That is the a least they can complaint. do when you're in that situation is give you some, some decent food. Yeah. But um, when, um, when he finally went, like, I. I'll never forget the feeling. It was like a wall had come down that had been protecting me. Mm. And like, oh, it was like a tsunami of guilt just hit me. It was like being hit like a, by a truck. I don't know. It's so weird. I had a complete out of body reaction to him being gone. I mean, I'd been beside his him, his body for weeks, months, hours. You know, I'd sat there and sat there and sat there. But I'd never let myself feel it. And I think that was like a crazy sensation then to have that hit you. And I just kind of, well, I just kind of threw my arms around him and I just was kind of crying into his chest. And I could hear my mum going, stop it, stop it. And I didn't know what she was saying, stop it about. And then I realised I was just gasping and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> And I don't even remember forming those words, you know, it's just like that. It's just the gut feeling of I'm so terribly sorry. Mm. And so that's it. I just 
wondered why do they call it grief? They should call it guilt. But I'm thankfully that did start to lift. But yeah, yeah it was just a crazy, crazy experience. I think Alzheimer's puts the people who love the person with Alzheimer's in an desperately difficult position mm. especially when it's drawn out for that long like it's not the same but my biological mom died a couple of years ago and um it took a long time you know we we were at her deathbed and then she rallied and then you know we had to go she was in yeah. Chicago we were over and back and then in the end she died on her own yeah and you know it it was so difficult. I, f- I, f- I felt so guilty for not being there and that she died on her own. But what else What else could we do? And what else could you do, Sophie? Like you were, I know. You were just trying to survive, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I don't know what else, what else a person can do. I mean, I'm just, I'm really grateful to you for being so honest about it because I think that there will be so many people who will recognize themselves in what you've said yeah and that old forgive yourself advice is coming (laughs) back to me now you know I know well I remember I remember texting you I remember asking my mom I asked everyone I knew who lost a parent did they know about this guilt thing did they have this guilt thing and everyone said yes categorically yes yeah and then I thought, but like, I mean, you shouldn't feel guilty, but I should feel guilty. <laughs> it was amazing that, but it was amazing to have you to talk to about that. And that thing of like, I suppose there's no uncomplicated death. There's no uncomplicated grief because there's no uncomplicated relationships. Yeah. And that's it. There's, I mean, that's the really sucky thing with grief. Like there's just no shortcut. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Like you just have to like kind of knock out the hours of it. Yeah. There should be a sign and like maybe it's not wearing black for a year, but (laughs) like I think, I think that people need to remember that grief takes a long time and you can't expect people to just get over things. Yeah. You know, even if they're putting a brave face on it or they want to pretend like everything's okay or if they're just getting on with things because what else are, frankly, are people supposed to do? You know, it's still there. Yeah. I mean, maybe the problem is that we're all like a huge portion of us is always in it. Maybe that's yeah. the, But I think I've been incredibly bowled over by people's compassion, like um, since um, my dad died and the people who took time to like message or send letters like in the past when somebody I knew had lost somebody I might I'd be I'd feel like I couldn't send a text so that would be like trivializing it in some way and then I'd go no I have to get a card for that person then I'd forget to get the card then six months would pass now I'm like no just send that text that's easy that's all they need Mm. is just that I'm thinking of you it's like a tap on the shoulder so like for months after his funeral I just get these texts or little cards or lines of an email all the time of somebody just it's like a little kind of tap on the shoulder saying I'm thinking of you and it really does help yeah 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 but um, I think that's true for so many situations as well sometimes just the acknowledgement of like I know things are tough right now yeah can be so powerful yeah I think that's it you feel paralyzed because you don't have any answer for the person when really you absolutely don't need to offer any answer yeah just hey (laughs) (laughs) hey how are you thanks (laughs) (laughs) you're great yeah yeah but um, yeah, so it's been it's been mad because I think as well when you've got this very long um, illness type vibe, you think that the death is going to be the end mm. like and you're waiting for relief because you think like, you know, that it's relief for 
your person like you're yeah. just happy they're they're free now like um but then the relief doesn't come or it hasn't for me yet yeah but at least i don't have to go to the hospital anymore yeah they were great the coffee was shite <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you should put that on your comment cards <laughs> yeah. when you're feeding back to them. Love you guys. You <laughs> great work. You saw us through the coffee the could be improved. Years of our lives. Yeah, uh, just FYI. Up yeah. that coffee game. But Do yeah. you ever? Are you ever in the vicinity of that place? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I drive past sometimes. Yeah. And what does that feel like? Yeah. I just I when I drive past, it makes me think of that very last night. Mm. Um. Which like a lot of it took place in the middle of the night. It was kind of it was very sort of surreal, I suppose, because I'd always just been in there just during the day. And yeah. But yeah. No, I look at it and I think, like, I do feel yeah, glad that that part of my life's over. Mm. Um, I don't associate with Kev though at all. Kev, in my mind, is at the end of the South Wall um, where he loved to walk. And so I think of him a lot when I go out there. I live near there. Mm. And that's, I think, when I've been sea swimming a lot this year. And I started that because I kind of thought maybe that would be a kind of I'm not good at meditation or anything, but here was maybe some kind of like mental space talismanic activity I could do. I so I feel it's something Michael Harding might do. <laughs> you know, yeah. to like hashtag be more Mike. Yeah. And so I started <laughs> sea swimming, and um, it did really help me at the start. Even just like unclench, like grief's a very physical thing, and yeah. like you know. I just felt like my face was constantly in pain and tight from clenching and oh, I don't know back and anyway I'd go and lie in the sea and I did feel quite strongly that he was kind of in the sea that's kind of where I think of him now yeah. um, as as dwelling he well, likes the sea he likes swimming that is a lovely place to finish I think yeah Sophie thank you so much no thank you so much if people want to find Mother of Pod just search Mother of Pod on the various platforms right? yes and uh, on Facebook Instagram at Mother of Podcast. We're Mother of Pod on Facebook. And yeah, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. All those places. All the places. And of course, people can find your writing on image.ie. I write for The Pool. I have a weekly column in the Sunday Independent Life magazine called The Domestic. And my book is still available in all good bookshops. It's called Recipes for a Nervous Breakdown. It is fantastic. Sophie White, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The Collective 2FM.